Please pray with me as we open God's word together. Father, what a mighty word we have from you this morning to study together. And I pray that you would open it to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, would we feast on your word this morning? And would it nourish and transform us in Jesus' name? Amen. Uh, Michelle did such a wonderful job teaching on peace, on shalom. And we're going to sort of pick up with um, that same idea. We're going to stay in Isaiah chapter 9 today. Um, and, but before we talk about peace, I want to talk about some of the harsh reality of war, um, because that was the context of this passage in Isaiah 9. So I'm sure that most of you know Ken Lee in this congregation, um, and you know that she and other members of her family uh, flew right over to Poland this year, soon after the war broke out in Ukraine. Uh, and they spent months over there working to rescue Ukrainian orphans from danger. And uh, what they found was that the situation for Ukrainian orphans was dire. Uh, first, because there were stories coming out um, or, or the orphanages were being abandoned in Ukraine. The adult caregivers were just fleeing for their lives, leaving the children behind to fend for themselves. Um, and the second reason was that the invading Russian army was showing no hesitation in shelling civilian buildings, including schools and hospitals. So no one was safe, and least of all the children. Uh, so Kenley was part of a team that worked hard to get as many orphans as they could out of the country. They, they barely slept. They were constantly on the phone coordinating transportation and housing. Uh, each day brought a slew of new and unexpected missions for them to accomplish. And sometimes they were successful and other times not. Uh, one of the worst days began with a phone call from an American man who was in the process of adopting a son from one of these Ukrainian orphanages. And the orphanage in question was deep now in occupied territory and needed to be evacuated. So the father asked Kenley's team for help. They would be part of a transportation relay. Their job was to stay in Ukrainian territory and receive the children in buses from the occupied territory and then carry them on out of Ukraine and into Poland. So they agreed to help, and they got into Ukraine ready to receive the children. Uh, and the buses arrived safely with the first half of the children from the orphanage. The buses were being driven by the orphanage caregivers, and they turned them around, and they headed back into occupied territory to collect the second half of the children, and none of them made it. The next phone call Kenley's team received was the report that all the adults on those buses had been killed on their way back to the orphanage, despite that they were all displaying humanitarian insignia. Uh, thankfully, there were no children on board when it happened, and thankfully, the other half of the children were later rescued by another group. But nevertheless, it was a sudden and tragic and brutal loss of life, a reminder of the fearful shadow of death in a year where such stories can be multiplied 100,000 times over. So today we're thinking, what does God have to say about this? And what hope is there for people who live under the constant shadow of death? And that's the reason that he gave us Isaiah chapter 9. So please uh, make sure that you have it open in front of you as we look at it together now. We're in Isaiah chapter 9, page 573 of the church Bibles, Isaiah 9. And I want to think about these seven verses of this wonderful song uh, in three parts. Um, first, that the darkness is death. Second, the champion is a child. And third, peace is God's 
passion. So first, the darkness is death. Look with me at verse 2 of Isaiah 9. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them, on them has light shone. And people really love this verse, don't we? That's a verse to make our hearts sit up and take notice. It's really beautiful. It's sheer poetry. Um, and it's a Hebrew parallelism. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Hebrew poetry uses parallelism for clarity and for beauty and for emphasis. But as we think about this statement in verse 2, it's obviously a metaphor, isn't it? We're not talking about literal darkness and light here. I guess there are contexts that could be literal, like if someone was trapped in a cave and then they got outside, or if someone was blind and they had their eyes open. But in this case, it's not literal, is it? Because the people who are walking in darkness are outside, and their eyes work fine, and they're under a bright sun. The world is perfectly well lit for them physically, yet it says they're walking in darkness. So what should we understand is meant here by darkness? Does it mean ignorance, God or his will? Does it mean wickedness? Um, in other cases, it could be, but in this case, neither of those things is in view, is it? Because instead, the evidence of this passage is that the darkness is death, and particularly the kind of constant, senseless death that comes from a brutal war. So I want to show you that in the text together. L let's look at verse 1 first. It says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So there's that same idea of darkness again, of gloom. And here it's connected with anguish, with distress, not with sin or ignorance. The verse goes on. In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So how and when did God bring the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali into contempt? For that, we need to search the history books for the answer. And we find uh, an event that was recent history to Isaiah, the Assyrian invasion of 733 BC. So the mighty kingdom of Assyria had its capital in Nineveh to the northeast of Israel, and it was an ascendant power, conquering and empire building. Assyria was a bloody war machine that treated human life with contempt, and it had recently invaded the northern part of Israel, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, invaded it, and then annexed it as Assyrian territory. The Assyrians redrew the borders of that land into three new districts called Duru, Galazar, and Magidu. And those three districts correspond exactly to the way of the sea, that's Duru, the land beyond the Jordan, that's Galazar, and the Galilee of the nations, that's Magidu. In Hebrew, Magidu is Megiddo, where still stands the hill of Megiddo, in Hebrew, Har Megiddo, or in English, Armageddon, um, where we all know the last battle is due to take place. I don't know what that means, but it's an interesting connection. Um, <clears throat> so the three Assyrian territories are all mentioned there in Isaiah 9 verse 1 as the lands that, that God will rescue, lands that used to belong to Zebulun and Naphtali. And that shows that the darkness Isaiah 9 has in mind is invasion, it's war, it's death. Um, and there's more evidence for that in verse 2 because the Hebrew word for deep darkness is often translated shadow. 
and it has inside it the Hebrew word for death. In Psalm 23, the same Hebrew word appears, and we translate it the valley of the shadow of death. We saw that two other times in Psalm 107, and we see it again in Zechariah's song. It's all that same idea, the valley of the shadow of death. Um, so then going on to verse 4, Isaiah reminds the people of Midian's defeat. You see that there, in, as in the day of Midian? That's most likely a reference to the time of Judges, when God raised up Gideon to liberate Israel from the violent oppression of the Midianites. That's Judges chapter 7. And if you remember the story, Gideon started off with really quite a decent army of 32,000 men. But God told him, no, that's far too many. And he gradually whittled down the army to just 300 and in that story, God defeated the massive army of Midian with just 300 soldiers. And Isaiah prophesies here in verse 4 that we're going to see that happen all over again. It'll be just like that all again, where God shatters the rod of the oppressor and he leaves his people rejoicing as those who divide the plunder. Only this time, he's not going to use 300. He's planning to do it with an army of just one. And the final symbolism of war and death comes in verse 5 where it says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The boots and the cloaks were the uniforms of war, and here they have been well used and they're bloody, but nevertheless, they're still expensive. They're still valuable, essential to the strength of any army. And if you got your hands on the boots and the cloaks of enemy soldiers, you wouldn't be likely to burn them. You'd clean them up and you'd use them for your own army, unless, unless there wasn't going to be any more war, ever. Then you'd burn them, and you'd dance around the blaze. So the darkness in this prophecy is the shadow of death, particularly the darkness of war, of an unjust and brutal invasion. But then the light and the hope of this prophecy is that war is going to be ended forever, and maybe even death itself ended forever because second the champion is a child in verse 6 all of the war imagery disappears from the poem abruptly and a face emerges in its place and we look with astonishment to find that against all of this terror against the stomping boots and the blood-soaked cloaks a champion has arrived on God's side and his face when it emerges is the face of a child for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. In the past, Gideon fought off Midian with just 300 men, but this time all God needs is one. One who is very special. The prophecy says the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Four grand titles for just one man, one governor. And I want to explain and examine each one of these titles closely. Um, all four have the same grammatical construct relationship in the Hebrew. So um, we might give them the parallel translations. He's counselor of wonder, God of might, father of eternity, prince of peace. <clears throat> So let's look at those together. First, the counselor of wonder. That means that his wisdom and his strategy are extraordinary. Other kings need to surround themselves with counselors to give them advice and direction. But this king needs no counselors because he keeps his own counsel and he governs with extraordinary skill. He's wonderful counselor. 
Second, that he's the God of might. And yes, that says God. In the Hebrew Bible, plain as day, to us, a child is born. That's to us, Israel, and to us, humanity. A human child, and he will be called God of might. It's right there in Old Testament prophecy. A man who is God. The Jewish Hebrew scholars who want to deny that it says this have to do absolute violence to their own text. They have to break all their own rules of interpretation to conform this prophecy to their insistence that God has not been made a man. But Isaiah says that he has. Isaiah foretold beforehand that this is what would happen. Plain as day. God of might. Might is the Hebrew word gibor for a champion, a valiant warrior, victorious and undefeated. He is father of eternity, which means he's everlasting, yes, immortal, yes, but it means more than that besides. It means he's the father of eternity, the source and the master over eternity, author of time, father of everything. So it's another ascription of divinity. And Fourthly, he is prince of peace. So, yes, he's a sovereign who conducts himself peaceably, yes, and he's one that brings forth and accomplishes peace in his land. True, but more than that as well, that he's prince of peace itself, sovereign over the very state of peace, able to command peace. So, what a noble set of titles this is. What a capable champion, and what a broad pair of shoulders for the government to rest upon. Do you rejoice with me that the government can be placed on his shoulders, upon such a set of shoulders as these? Because we realize, don't we, as we get older, as we start to take on some responsibilities of leadership, even in small ways, that the burden of government is heavy. Perhaps not too heavy for the best of humanity to lift on their best day, but too heavy for most us to lift on any given day, and too heavy for anyone to lift well every day. And the problem is that once the weight of government is lifted, it cannot be easily laid down. And the burden of government is tiring. It grows heavier with time. So we saw Moses, and Moses lifted it for a while, but last week we saw Moses buckle under the weight. And King David later on lifted the burden for a while, but he too was proven unable to sustain it when he fell into adultery and murder. And who is going to outperform Moses and David? On whose shoulders can we rest this immense weight of global government? Who will be strong? Who will be faithful and true and righteous year after year after year? Who will do what no human governor has done and accomplish global peace? Not me. Is it you? Who can the human family put forward to fill this role? But if no one is found, then we must utterly despair of peace, and wars and death will go on forever. So praise be to God for Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and the government will be on his shoulders. One of history's leaders who I most admire is Queen Elizabeth II of England, who ended her reign this year after 70 years of faithful commitment to her sacred duty. After her death, her private chaplain shared with the world something that she had once told him in private. Queen Elizabeth told him that she so hoped 
that Jesus would come back before she died so that she could cast her crown at his feet. There was a woman who knew the terrible weight of governance and a woman who trusted in the broad shoulders of Jesus to bear it well. He himself is the light that shines in our darkness, the dawn that has come. If the darkness is death, then the light is a person, a child champion who becomes a governor. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And in the text, you'll notice in verse 4 that he lifts a burden off of our shoulders. He lifts the burden of oppression off his people's shoulder, and instead he takes the burden of government onto his own shoulder in verse 6. A shoulder for a shoulder. Jesus carries the load. So then first, the darkness is death. Second, the champion is a child. And now third, peace is God's passion. Verse 7 concludes, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. What a wonderful word that is, zeal. Zeal is energetic passion that provokes decisive action. Let me say that again. Zeal is energetic passion that provokes decisive action. So we all know that if a man loves a woman and he buys her a diamond ring and he flies a thousand miles to give it to her, then he does it with zeal. And if he arrives and he finds that another man is flirting with his girl and harassing her and he rushes into her defense, then he does it with zeal. <laughs> zeal is action that cares. Zeal is passion that stops at nothing. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty is to establish peace. See it for yourself in God's word. Top of verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And as Michelle showed us earlier, peace, this word peace, is such a big word in the Hebrew. Shalom, not just the end of war and the laying down of weapons, but harmony between the nations, good relations. Imagine Ukrainians and Russians laughing together taking their guns and melting them all down to make knives and forks for the banquet table because we'll never need those weapons again. And shalom is not just external calm, but serenity inside us. And it's also provision and bounty and abundance and also security that nothing will ever be made wrong again. Shalom is such a great big word. And it's not fragile. It's not shaky or iffy. Shalom is as strong as Samsonite, and it lasts forever. And this is the destination that God presses to with all the fire of his ardent zeal, that there will be peace on earth, and that it will increase forever, and that it will never be stolen again. All the might of God drives the world toward this goal. Will any nation stand in his way? God will not rest until the earth is at rest, till all the nations are at peace under the Prince of Peace. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, and we have even more reason than the early people to know this, because we have half of this prophecy fulfilled already. For to us a child has been born in Bethlehem, to us a son is given to Mary, and the government has already been placed upon his shoulders. We know him, and we've met him, and he has never failed. He has never been in the least way disappointing, never crumbled under any weight or load, or done a single underhanded or shabby thing. And we say with Isaiah, having met the man himself, that he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And we yearn with all our hearts for the increase of his government and of peace. So today... Are we followers of the Prince of Peace? There's enough war in the world, isn't there? And we're all tired enough with the ways of war and with the shadow of death, which only seem to grow worse every day. But is there anything that we can do about it? Living out our small lives in this small town? Well, yes, actually, there is. Jesus loves small people. And he calls us to be his allies for peace in all of our relationships. And friends, we have a lot of work to do to pursue all that makes for peace with everyone we know. So I want to challenge us today that this matters. What we do in this small area matters globally and matters for the uh, power of God to make peace throughout the world. Are we keeping short accounts with our friends family, and neighbors. So have we made a personal commitment to bear no grudges, not to carry in our heart any wounds or offenses against any other person alive that have not been smoothed over with the salve of forgiveness? Jesus, our Lord of peace, has taught us the way of forgiveness, and indeed he commands it as necessary to our salvation that we forgive our enemies. Are we practicing it every time? forgiving our enemies every time. Because I believe it's essential to his global program of peace. It's the only way to finally end war. Jesus said, Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go to him. Tell him his fault and be ready to forgive him. And I think, honestly, this is more of a new idea to us than it should be. Jesus absolutely means do not go to any other human alive until you've gone to the one who offended you. Don't cancel him, don't campaign against him, don't write him hate mail, and don't avoid him. Go to him. Friends, listen. Do not let your dog or your cat at home hear your complaint against your neighbor until you have taken it to him. As Jesus commanded you in Matthew 18, let the offender be the first to hear it and not the last. Because to spread a bad report about a brother or sister whom you are too cowardly to confront is really a terrible sin against the peace and the unity of the body of Christ. And I know from bitter personal experience that this seemingly small and innocent practice that everybody does is in fact a seed that takes root and grows into a very great tree of bitterness, one that divides our community and takes months to root out again. So please pay attention to this for the sake of our peace as we follow 
the Prince of Peace. Our Father is jealous and zealous with ardent passion for the increase of peace on the earth. It's the reason Jesus died. It's top of his agenda as king, and he wants us to be partners with him in that program, to be lovers of peace and agents of peace. Surely this world's had enough of war. No one feels that more keenly than God himself. Isaiah 9 is the new world, the world where Jesus is head over everyone and everything, where justice happens every day, righteousness happens every day, and peace just keeps on growing and growing. That's the world I want to live in. So let's trust Jesus to take us there. Amen.